People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We are so excited to have Erica Suter with us today on Health Gig. We are talking about something that is so important, and that is to all mothers out there, how do you have a kid and a life? And Erica has written the definitive survival guide to how to be a mom, have a kid, and a life. When did being a good mom come to mean giving up everything that used to make you, you? That's what we're talking about today with Erica. That's the question millions of 21st century mothers grapple with every single day as they muddle through our kid-centric culture. Contrary to incessant messaging, not always putting your kids first, not sacrificing your own free time, enjoyment, and dreams so your kids can have your full attention every day is what makes for a good mother. Erica delves into so many important issues in this survival guide. And today we're going to go chapter by chapter with Erica She shares with us incredible information, research-based. And Erica, welcome to Health Gig. Let's get started. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I'm so excited about your new book, How to Have a Kid and a Life, A Survival Guide. And I thought we could spend the next 45 minutes you telling me what made you write this book. And I thought that our listeners would love to go chapter by chapter, if that's comfortable with you, because each one has incredible nuggets and you are hysterical, particularly when I laughed so hard. This one, um, you know, I can't tell you how many people I spoke with who got a dog in hopes that it would get them ready for the responsibility of caring for a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of people <laughs> that I know that are doing that right now, currently, yeah. <laughs> are going to want to hear what you have to say. Tell me, tell us about you and what brought you to write this amazing book. I spent most of my career writing for magazines. I was an entertainment and health writer at People Magazine, and then I wrote for Us Weekly. And then after I had children, I switched gears. It's almost kind of impossible to have the kind of schedule I had and have a family life. So I started editing actually for a website called Cafe Mom. And you know, I was plugging along. I was a mother. I had a, my son was about five years old when I started focusing just on parenting writing. And I struggled like every mom. I felt like I was underwater half the time trying to balance work and family and marriage, but I never really talked about it a lot. It just seemed like everyone was kind of doing it and doing it better than I was. And I just kind of thought, well, this is just my particular struggle. And then I came across this research that came out about a mom gene. And I was obsessed with the concept that there could be a gene in your body that if it's not activated, which is what the scientists had said, then it may affect how maternal you are, um, whether your biological clock started ticking, or whether you find motherhood something that's easier. And so I wrote about that for Cafe Mom. And the response I got was amazing. I know I wrote about discovery of a mom gene, the reason some of us don't crave having kids. And then I talked about how odd it felt. I kept waiting for this like natural ability to kick in, to understand the cries, to understand everything the baby wanted. I wondered why breastfeeding was so hard for me when everyone else seemed to do it with such ease. And when I wrote about these things, that's when I realized that very few people do these things with ease. So many moms were struggling. And that's when I thought in my head, what what else are we not talking about? Like what other struggles that are happening in new motherhood that no one really prepares you for, right? 
So that's when the seeds of this book kind of were planted. That's incredible. And again, you know, nobody really hands you an instruction manual. You know, how do I do this? So this really fits that need. Tell me more about the mom gene that you've researched and that inspired you to write this book. There's this gene that uh, these really amazing scientists at Rockefeller University here in New York had found this gene that is in female mice. And the same gene is in human women. And basically what happens at certain times in your life, the gene kind of like activates, right? It starts working. And what they found that when, when that gene was suppressed in mice, they weren't maternal at all. So they didn't really take care of their children. They didn't have interest in reproducing and, you know, things like that. One of the reasons it really kind of struck me was I was never one of those young girls who played with baby dolls. I never played house. I did play with Barbies, loved Barbies, but they were like having adventures in the Amazon with Scooby-Doo <laughs> and Shaggy. <laughs> they weren't having babies with Ken. And then when I got to college, I had various roommates and I remember having some roommates who were like, I cannot wait to get married and have a baby. And I'm thinking like, oh, well, I was very much into developing a career and being this, you know, amazing writer. And uh, it was just so foreign to me that that would be a goal at like 19. And then I got married and I was still waiting for this biological clock to start ticking. Right. And it never did. And my husband used to send me texts. He's, you know, he calls me Ricky and he's like, Ricky, my biological (laughs) clock is ticking. We we really need a baby. I want a baby so badly. And I was like, ew. But I did have, you know, I thought, well, it's time because I I was 30 and it made sense. My career seemed to be in a great place. I I was in this great marriage and it made sense. I had a baby because like I'm supposed to want to have a baby right now. So when I saw the research, I thought maybe, and I love my my children. I I wouldn't trade being a mother for anything. Totally understand that. Yes. Get that. I wondered why I never had that urge, right? Mm-hmm. That I'm like, oh, I've got to have a baby. Or I can't wait to have a baby. You know, I'd hold friends' babies and they'd, like, you know, my mother in law would say, as soon as you hold their baby, you're going to want one of your own. And I'd hold their baby and then they needed a diaper change. I'm like, oh, your baby needs a diaper change. And I'd hand it right back. So it was just really interesting to hear that research. And to be fair, I do think maternal instinct is much more nuanced than this gene, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many mm-hmm. factors that come into play about how we mother, what we want, what we need and everything like that. There's so many social factors, but I just thought it was interesting that there might be a a bit of a scientific explanation why some of us aren't as eager to start the motherhood process as others. And then it also made me feel like, you know, maybe I'm not so alone in the fact that I'm behind in this maternal longing. That's right. Because I think there are so many young women now that, as you say, are having their career and doing lots of things that they're going to love hearing that, okay, I might not have my mom, G might not be turned on. Not to say that you're not going to love being a mother and not to say that you're going to, the best part of your life is that. I think it's going to help them kind of understand a little bit better as to what's going on. I know in my life with my daughters, let's go chapter by chapter and just highlight it because it's all so good. Like chapter one, the myth of modern motherhood. Do you want to tell us what that chapter is about and why you loved writing that chapter? I think one of the things that we all grow up with, with this idealized version of motherhood. And sometimes we have this idea, no matter what our own family life was like, you know, we're bombarded with so many images of what it's like to be a mother. I kind of go through how motherhood is portrayed in the media from the time of the World War II era and on. 
there's a show called Leave It to Beaver on many, many years (laughs) ago. And June Cleaver would vacuum in pearls and heels. (laughs) And she's always so perfectly dressed. And you rarely ever saw her outside of the kitchen or the living room. Right. (laughs) And it just seemed like that was her entire world. And it was like her family was her entire world. And you kind of got this sense like, this is what a mom is. The husband went off to work. She stayed home. She cooked. She cleaned. And she just made everything wonderful at home. And then even as time progressed, when you had um, more modern moms, like let's say on Family Ties, Elise Keating was, she was an architect. And then you had other moms who were advertising executives or newscasters or lawyers. And one thing I noticed is that they still were the perfect mom. They still always Mm. had time for their kids. Their houses were impeccable and they gave great advice. They had great marriages. And it just still seemed like this idea that, oh, you can still work, but you still have all these other responsibilities and you're going to be able to do them all, right? Right. And then even when we get into even a more modern era, so we have shows like Blackish and uh, Modern Family, where thank God that expanded the view of a great ideal American family, that it expanded this idea that there can be same-sex parents who have happy, loving households, great homes, great families great lives, but it still was a very idealized version of parenthood. And Mm -hmm. it still didn't leave much space for the messiness that really exists in our lives. Right. And (laughs) I thought, you know, but this is, these are the examples that we have in media and in the movies, even, you know, with a a lot of the movies that I was, I went back to watch, even if mothers had issues like Tully, that was a great example of someone who's struggling with someone, but then it was wrapped up in a neat little bow in the end. And that's just not what life is like. And so I wanted to kind of explore this myth of motherhood that we all have. And what I found really interesting is that when I asked mothers, when I asked women, I was like, what was your mother like? Mm. And there were so many wonderful, glowing comments. My mother was so fun. She was really pretty. She was loving. You know, I want to take the conversation a little deeper. You know, what was, what was your mother like, you know, maybe when she wasn't around you? What, did she have hopes and dreams? Did she ever want to do something she wasn't able to do? And then the comments got a little deeper. You know, there was a little bit of a silence. And then there was, she was tired all the time. Or um, it was hard for her to take care of us all. You know, she wanted to go back to school, but my sister and I were really upset. So she didn't do it. And we, we guilted her out of it. Um, she never did anything for herself. And so then... I started to really explore this idea that we see what motherhood was like for our mothers, often seeming very selfless, never really making time for themselves. And we kind of also take that on. We subconsciously realize that that's something we have to do if we're mothers too. And I just wanted to explore this concept that even in our own lives, we see these selfless women who put themselves last. And I wanted to kind of change that story for mothers. And it doesn't mean that you don't take care of your family. That's not not what I'm saying. But I really need mothers to put themselves back on the top of their to-do list, right? Right. You you need to be at least in the top five of your things to do. (laughs) It's not Ah. two or three, right? You need to be in your top five. And, And most women weren't doing that. Right. Oh, that is such a great message. And again, young moms in particular that, as you describe, I mean, it hits you. You don't know that you're supposed to do that. It's almost like the young moms that I'm seeing now, chapter forgotten that. So that is a really good point. Chapter two, the motherhood penalty, how to keep Mm -hmm. your career on track. And I love this, what to really expect. 
if you thought you were at a disadvantage before, that glass ceiling just got lower. Can you yeah. talk about that? I think one of the things that most women expect if they have careers or jobs and they get pregnant is that they're protected. That's kind of where I want to start off this conversation mm-hmm. about the motherhood penalty. You know, you think that you're protected if you're on maternity leave. Well, there were so many women that I talked to who were laid off on maternity leave. And I, in fact, was someone who was laid off on maternity leave. And I had no idea it was legal at the time. <sighs> Companies have wonderful protections for themselves. And, you know, motherhood is one of those things like the world says it respects and reveres mothers, but oftentimes what happens to mothers proves the opposite. How I went into my maternity leave with a womb-induced sense of security. Like right, no right. one gets played off on mm-hmm. maternity leave, but it happens to a lot of women. So I explored that and I wanted to talk to legal experts about what people who are going on maternity leave can do to protect themselves. Because oftentimes there was nothing that was wrong. There weren't bad performance evaluations. It was part of a, of a larger layoff or a restructuring of the company. Those are the two biggest reasons why women who are on maternity leave are laid off. Um, I still think they should be protected even during the structure because they're not there and they're, you know, they have new children at home. But then I also want to talk about when you do go back to work, the person that you were perceived as before you had a baby is different than after you had a baby. Numerous studies and a lot of anecdotal evidence showed me that you are thought of as less dedicated, less capable, um, not as efficient, all of which is not true. Mothers are, have proven to be some of the most efficient workers in every industry. And it's because we know how to juggle. We have a certain time we have to get out of there. There's so many things that make us assets to a company, but that's not how we're perceived. I remember one woman telling me that she was at the top of her field. She was in marketing economics kind of field that um, I don't understand. (laughs) But she, she was at the top of her game. She was a leader at the company. And she said when she came back, she felt as though everyone thought her IQ did significantly. And there was no reason why. It wasn't like she was worse at her job. It was just this perception that there's no way she can be as good as she has a child. And people say things all the time to working mothers like, oh, there's no way you can handle the same workload and be a mom. Or I can't believe your husband lets you work because you work so many hours. And it's just like things that are not appropriate and not fair. And I wanted women to be prepared for that. I don't want to scare new mothers, but I wanted to warn them and then give them tools to protect themselves just in case this is happening. Yeah, no, that's, that's so helpful. What Can you go through the top three tools of what you think that they should be armed with? Yeah, 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 of course. I, I think women should be more courageous about seeking legal counsel if they're pushed out when they're on maternity leave. A lot of people just don't know what to do. They don't know if they're going to be able to afford it or what are the chances of them winning against a huge company. Well, there are more and more cases of this kind of discrimination that are being won. And I think that it's really important that first off, you get legal advice if it happens to you. But if you're leading up to the maternity leave, which is what I hope this helps women leading up to maternity leave, when you go into your HR and you're talking about your leave, you want to make sure that they understand that you know the law. So you want to have this conversation in a very sweet, wonderful way, but you can engage the topic. And when you're talking to your HR representative and you talk about, you know, I am so glad that we both understand the protections that are afforded women on maternity leave or people on um, maternity and paternity leave. So that kind of already gets in their head that you understand the legal protections. 
And then you also want to know your value. So before you leave, spend time figuring out all the ways that you contribute mm-hmm. to that office. Consider asking friends to weigh in and, um, and and make notes about big wins you've had or, or projects you've worked on or things that you've done that's that have really made a difference. And then make sure your superiors know the positive way that you influence the day-to-day operations. That's really important. And I'm not saying that you don't have to do this in an aggressive way. These can be conversations. You can be, I just wanted to go over my, my last year or the last quarter. And these mm-hmm. are some of the great things I worked on or the things that I contributed to. And I'm looking forward to getting right back into that after my maternity leave. And you will also want to update your resume. Some of us who have been, if you've been at a company for a decade, you probably haven't even like taken a look at your resume, right? So you just want to, while it's fresh and while you're working on things and projects, you want to make sure that that's updated before you leave, just so that you have it, right? Mm-hmm. You never know what you want your plans to do. Maybe you will decide that you want to stay home. It's always good to keep all those contributions fresh in your mind right. in case you ever need it. And then also send all of your contacts to your home computer. I'll put it on a district just so that like, if you can't go back, that you have all the contacts you need in the company and clients or whoever, whatever That's that you, you may really need. a good thought. Yeah, you're right. Just to be mm-hmm. prepared. And hopefully like, you know, this is just a little extra precautionary right, work, right. but you know, you really want to try to protect yourself and cover yourself, but also let those people that you work with know how valuable you are. And I should have noted the reason you want to highlight all of the good work that you've been doing so that in case when they decide to downsize and you're on maternity leave, they can't suddenly add bad work evaluations to your file or surprise you with these new things that they discovered that you did wrong. And then there's, there's more of a foundation for that's not true. We actually, before I left, we had a meeting on June 22nd where we went over X, Y, Z. Right. So those are just little things you can do to protect yourself. You know, that's just so helpful because, again, unless you hear it from someone, you don't think like that and anything could happen. And that that is just so, so helpful. Chapter three, it takes a village for you. What to really expect. You must redefine what friendship means at this stage of your life. Sometimes your pre-kid posse doesn't quite cut it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I'm a big advocate for women with children also maintaining their friendships, their strong friendships with women who have chosen to be child-free. That's very important. Some of the support that you need is going to be best filled, especially during early motherhood, by women who are going through something very similar or the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm a huge advocate of expanding your village to include other moms. But Mm -hmm. the problem is that we just think like, oh, because someone else is a mom, I'll join this mommy group and all these moms will be my friends. A boom occupied at the same time is not a recipe for (laughs) long-lasting friendships. So you have to focus on (laughs) other things. And so I wanted to kind of really break that down because I talked to so many women who are like, I know tons of moms, but I still feel so lonely or I just haven't found my mom crew. And they're not going to fall in your lap. And sometimes you have to try different things before you find those women that you really vibe with. I mean, I talked to one woman whose son was five before she found those moms she really, really loved being with a lot, you know, that she really loves spending her, her time with. That's a little late, but my point is your tribe is out there. You just have to make efforts to find them and you have mm-hmm. to invest time. You know, there was a mom when I had a baby who lived down the hall from me and we were so different. Like I, I had never met anyone quite like her. She was kind of brash and, 
and kind of uh, really critical and opinionated of everything, of the, everything. You know, not not necessarily me, but no one else in our building really liked her. <laughs> right. Much. And but you know, we were on the floor. All of my friends, pretty much most of them, were busy with their careers and working, and I was home all day with the baby. And so I'm a good listener. I'm a listener by trade. So I kind of just, I hung out with her and we, and I say we were different as chalk and cheese. I I, I would have never (laughs) been this woman's friend in probably a normal, like if I met her at a cafe or something like that. Right, right. (laughs) And she wound up being one of the biggest supports I ever had as a new mother. And I remember the day that I was laid off from my job and I had done it for a decade. I pretty much had only been a People magazine writer at that point. I didn't know what I was going to do. And my husband was out of town on a business trip. And she called and she was like, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, I can't talk right now. Like, I, I, I just can't talk. I will talk to you later. I hung up and then literally 10 minutes later, there was a knock at the door and I opened it and she had two lattes in her hand, handed me uh-huh. one, took my baby out of my hands, put him down for a nap, cleaned out with the toys, sterilized my bottles and just uh-huh. sat with me. And um, it was one of the nicest things anyone has ever done for me. And I didn't know I needed it until yeah. it was there. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we find these friends in very unlikely places or people we didn't know that we would resonate with, but we have to give them a chance and we have to invest right. a little time in spending with them. Right. And we also have to be open, right? So you find someone, you start vibing with them. It's not just about laughs, right? You right. want people that you can be vulnerable with who will celebrate your highs and support you doing your lows. And that's really critical. And I found that a lot of moms didn't really have that. Like they had surface friends where they meet up for coffee or whatever, mm-hmm. but who can they really talk to and who can they kind of get real with? And that's what yeah. we need. Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. Like real, connections. real um, connections. What do you think about though during COVID for all your young moms? What would you suggest during that? It, particularly when you're having your first child, how would you maneuver that? Having a baby during COVID has to be one of the hardest transitions into motherhood I can mm-hmm. imagine. Because what people don't understand is that you can be lonely even when you're with a child 24-7. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? It's, uh, the baby companionship isn't the same as grown-up friend companionship. So new moms are tired, they're stressed, they're worried, but you have to make sure you try to maintain connection. A lot of it had to be virtual when we were on this serious mm-hmm. lockdown. You have to make sure that you have phone calls every day with other people outside your house or Zoom calls. I, for one, have with my small group of close, close mom friends, every day at 5.30, we did a short nice. Zoom call. Sometimes it'd just be like, what are you making tonight? Oh, chicken yeah. again. <laughs> and then sometimes it would be like, my husband's driving me crazy. I'm not right. going to make it. <laughs> right. Or, or in other times it'd be like, did anyone see that real, the, you know, the real house was last night? Right. <laughs> the point is we had this thing to look forward to and we couldn't always stay on a long time because something might have been going on, right, with you know, kids. with work or the kids mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was like, we knew that it, from 5.30 to about 5.50, everyone was going to be on that link, that yeah. Zoom link. And we would just press in and pop in it whenever we could just for that little bit of connection. And those are the kinds of things that people don't realize that's all it takes to to feel less insane when you're alone and you're struggling with something. You need connection with people outside your home, whether it's via a text group, a video chat, walks outside. I also did that a little bit with a friend who could Mm -hmm. could meet me for a walk outside. So those things are critical and they don't seem like much. Right. But they are a lot when you're in the middle of a crisis like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, chapter four, the real mommy war. What to really expect <laughs> again, strive for understanding rather than acceptance. So take it from yeah. there. For most of my adult life, I've heard of the mommy war being, you know, stay at home mom <laughs> versus working mom. And that's not true. And that's not fair because stay at home moms are working moms. I found right. staying at home being very, very hard. So I wanted to kind of explore what the mommy war was. And I was thinking I was just going to figure out that it just doesn't exist anymore. Those divisions don't exist. But right. what I found was we may not be arguing about who works harder, the stay-at-home mom or, or the mom who works outside of the home. But what we're mm-hmm. arguing over is everything else. It's not a war. It's like a bunch of little skirmishes. Do you breastfeed or do you bottle feed? Right. Are you organic or non-organic? Are you a helicopter <laughs> mom or you know are you baby wear or are you more of a hands-off mom? Like all of these things are little points of division yeah. for moms. And points where we feel really kind of judged and it pits us against each other. I went to this play day. I was so excited. We all had babies. I was invited to this kind of group play day. And I was just like, oh, God, we're going to be around. I'm going to ruin other people. I'm going to put on a clean shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to comb my hair. This is fantastic. <laughs> and so I got there. And I have a very self-deprecating way about me. And breastfeeding was unbelievably difficult for me, for both my children. And this is with my, I, this, at this time, I just had one. And mm-hmm. I kind of did it for as long as I could produce milk. And I was a very, very bad producer or low producer. Um, I tried all the tricks, the cookies, the, the Guinness, everything. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to this play date, I was talking to a mom and I was like, oh, we were kind of like laughing. And, and she said something about breastfeeding. And I was like, oh, like I made some joke that I couldn't wait to pop, pack up that breast pump and be done <laughs> with it. It was like my poor raw bitten off nipple. Like or something, I made some joke. And she was horrified and she was really like, well, I'm breastfeeding my child till he's two. Immediately I felt judged. And then I think immediately she felt I wasn't as good of a mom. It doesn't change the fact that I couldn't really breastfeed anymore, but it does create this feeling of, Ooh, maybe I should make sure I know my audience before I share what's really happening with me. But then we shouldn't have to feel like we have to hide what's going on with us with our friends. So when I wanted to talk about the mommy war, I want to talk about all these ways, these little tiny ways we judge each other, make each other feel bad. We're all going to make different choices, right? I'm going to choose having a babysitter and going back to work and you're going to choose right. stay at home. You know, moms told me that they were told like, you know, if I wanted someone else to raise my kids, I wouldn't have had them. Or another mom told me that her sitter had quit. So she was rushing off to get drop her kids off at school before the bell. And she had a kid in each hand and was running. School was like four or five blocks away. And she bumped into a mom that she was friendly-ish with. She didn't know super well. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. My sitter quit and I didn't mean to bump into you. And the mom said, she's like, oh, finally seeing what it's like to be a mom, huh? And it was such a, she was so shocked. It was such a nasty comment. Why does someone else's choice have to offend Mm -hmm. us so much, right? Mm -hmm. Why can't we just accept that person's doing it differently? It doesn't mean I'm doing it worse, or I'm a bad mom. It just means I've made a different choice that's right for me and my family. So that's what I mean. Strive for understanding rather than acceptance, because that mom may never understand this other mom who has two businesses and always has sitters and, you know, can't make it to all the school meetings, but she can respect that that's her choice. And it's not something she's trying to push on anyone else. And the same thing with moms who choose to be 100% involved in every aspect of their child's life. Like we shouldn't, you know, those of us who choose careers or work or figure out how to, I know our life is like a pie chart. 
we should also <laughs> respect true. that that's that mom's choice. That's what gives her fulfillment. That's what makes her happy. Right. This, is, this is her happy place. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely saw the criticism and the judgment yeah. on both sides. Just judging is natural. Judging is human. That's what we all do. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to come from a nasty place. That's how we create our own standards and values for our family, right? Mm-hmm. We make a, we make, we decide what's right for our family and that's fine. Right. But we have to, we should also accept that other people are going to do it differently and that's okay too. Talk about an acceptance. Like you said, everybody's doing their thing and they're doing the best they can do. Yeah. But I have um, two way, two parts. I just wanted to add in. Yeah. We have to stop judging with that, such a negative eye. But on the other side of that, we have to stop fearing the judgment. We have to stop worrying so much about what other mothers think of us. Right. And that gives, that's going to give you a, a more sense of freedom, right? Exactly. Not worry so much. Just because they don't like what you're doing doesn't mean you're going to change what you're doing. You're doing right. what you need for your family and that you, right. should, you should own that and embrace that. Very good. Very good. So chapter five is no kidding. Why <laughs> your child-free friends think you are a jerk. <laughs> what to really expect. Your child-free friends may feel betrayed by you. This chapter came out of a a trip I I went. I went to a conference and it was called the Not Mom Summit. And it was the very first one that they had ever had that year I went. And I went as research. I was just super curious because, you know, that's, that's, this is what I was doing. I was traveling around talking to people about motherhood. And I thought, well, why not talk to people who are having a summit celebrating not being moms? And I went to it. It was the first one that they had ever had. And there are women there from all over the country, actually from other countries as well. And they were talking about what it's like to live child-free. When you decide to have children or you decide that's the kind of life and future you're going to have, I don't think we often think about what it's like for people who decide not to have children or the, how the things we say affect people who don't mm-hmm. have children. And there's so many little, like, and I, and I call them microaggressions toward um, the child-free. There's so many things that we say to people who don't have children that we don't even realize how insulting or hurtful these things are. Now, I went as an attendee and I was sitting in these different panels and these different groups. And some of them talked about how to secure your financial future if you don't have children Mm -hmm. or what to do during the holidays when you don't have children. And some Mm -hmm. of them were like that. Others were people were able to kind of express their anger or their frustration about how they're treated, even within their own family when they don't have kids. And I remember right. one woman telling the story of she has several siblings there, you know, they're all adults and all of them have children except for her and her husband. And her mother had, they did a big family picture and her mother asked her and her husband to step out because it was only for the siblings and children. Mm-hmm. And it, that just sounded crazy to me. And so mean, but I think that they took another picture with them, but why does, why was there a need to do the picture without them? And then they're all, they often get comments of, well, you're going to be so lonely or you're stupid for not having kids. Or there's just a lot of things that they bear the brunt of that people can kind of say in an offhanded way and maybe not mean to be so devastating, but they are devastating. Yeah, even the question, when are you having kids? You know, you have, sometimes you have no idea what kind of fertility struggles someone went through and they weren't child free by choice. And getting that question every time you see them at a family event or a holiday or a party or whatever is incredibly painful. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted people with children to be more acutely aware of how it feels to be on the other side. Now, some women are very happy to be Mm child-free. Some of the women at the conference were celebrating that fact. 
never wanted children, were very happy they didn't, they mm-hmm. never had children. And other women were coming to terms with the fact that they didn't have children that didn't, and that right. they wouldn't have children. So it was a really interesting mixture and it was really a wonderful, wonderful um, event to be a part of and just and sit there and listen and try to understand what was, what was going on in their yeah. lives. Oh, I love that, Erica. I think that's so important and so sensitive. Like you said, just knowing other people's stories, we just don't know. And I think that's lovely and something I know that my friends who didn't have children for one reason or another, it is a loss. I mean, a lot of them feel like it is a loss and it was something that they kind of even talk about. They had to grieve. They had to Mm -hmm. grieve the loss of the possibility. I think you just bring up a really good point. Not a lot of people ever talk about that. Something that we inadvertently do as mothers, at least this is one of the complaints that I heard was that we start cutting our uh, child-free friends out of events, yeah, right? Because right. we have this assumption that, well, they're not going to want to go to a school play or for your right. birthday party, you know, because they have other stuff to do. They have some other stuff going on. And what your child-free friend may not have the courage or um, may not want to tell you is that, you know, I do want to be a part of it. And that hurts. Right. You know, I don't want to be cut out of your life because I don't have kids. And on the other end of that, mm. we don't often don't celebrate their wins enough, right? Because we're so consumed with like what it's like to have children and family life and the, what the milestones right. are for that. You know, if someone gets a new job or starts dating a great guy or gets their own house or whatever, all of those are big wins also for yeah. someone who's child free. Those are huge milestones that we also should celebrate and, you know, lift them up. Yeah. Oh, I think that that's an incredibly amazing insight that that you're sharing with everybody for sure. Okay. Chapter six. This is (laughs) post-kid marriage. It's a thin line between love and hate. (laughs) What you really do expect you and your partner may have totally different visions of what parenthood will look like. This will be the source of a lot of attention. A period, what period of period, tension period. I love that. A lot of tension. (laughs) I know it's almost like resentment was written in the marriage or something like so many moms were so resentful. And I think what happens is it's like another situation of expectations versus reality. All the prep that you do as a couple is for stuff, right? Do I have a a nursery? Do I have a crib? Do I have a car seat? Do we have clothes? Do we have this? Do we have that? Right. Very little of it is prepping your marriage for what changes in your marriage. And so I'm advocating what I call Lamaze for your marriage. It really <laughs> is about sitting down with your spouse, not in like an argument, not in, not when things are boiling over and you're really right. angry, but sitting down if you can, if you haven't had kids yet, before you have kids and kind of talking through what are the expectations. Yeah. And I put down, I have some questions too that can help so that going into it, like go out for a date night or go out, you know, for lunch or have a picnic or something and then ask each other these questions I have in the to-do list. For example, what kind of parent do you want to be? And you each have a notebook and you feel, you know, you answer the question, you know, what kind of parent do you think your partner will be? What do you think your partner thinks about parent? Like, what is their general philosophy on parenting? Um, Will both of you work? Who will take off when the child is sick? I mean, there's some really simple to do's, right? Yeah. Usually people don't discuss them until they're like, oh my God, he has croup. Who's going to stay home? I can't stay home at a meeting. No, I can't stay home at a presentation. You know, (laughs) And these are things, you know, even something like how often will the grandparents visit or how involved will they yeah, be? Yeah, right. That's a huge one. Huge, you know? huge. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's your life, it's your marriage. And then now all of a sudden there it is. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that everybody has to deal with. It is. You know? Even 
discipline, right? <laughs> you know, my husband never even once discussed discipline until we had a child. Because we just, why would we discuss discipline until we had a child? We're like, oh, wait, are we, we're not spanking, right? Okay, we're right. both on the same page about that. Okay, no spanking. <laughs> but then some people get to that point and it's like, no, we're going to spank. Or, and then there's this like debate. Um, even even something as simple as is it daycare versus having a sitter yeah. in the home, if that's yeah. an option. And if something comes down to someone has to stay at home or take a step back in their career, who is that going to be? Most of the time, it is the mother. I mean, that's just what happens statistically. But have that conversation ahead of time. So right. there's a little bit of a, a heads up that if right. it happens, who, what, who what, does it make more sense? And maybe it doesn't make more sense. Maybe. Mm-hmm the mom is the more consistent earner, you know, but I just think that these things are never discussed until there's at some crisis point. And then it becomes arguments or points of resentment. And it's just be so easy to kind of get it out of the way early when you're in a good mood and you're excited and you may have these hearts and flowers answers that in the end, maybe don't always shake out. Gave it a try. Just a basic communication. That is, that is great advice. Chapter seven, who needs that? I have a headache excuse when you have kids. What to really expect. Sex may never be the same again. <laughs> and that's not to say it's worse. It's not, it doesn't have to be like worse or terrible. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's so many factors now that are a part of your life that it won't be right. as seamless and as like, so maybe not as spontaneous and right. not as you may be used to. And I, I also wanted to bring home the point is that you have to work on your marriage in a different way after kids. Right. Because mm-hmm. there's so many more pressures and there's so much more going on. And you all and everyone feels the pressure. Dads right. feel the pressure. Moms feel the pressure. It's the same in, in same sex couples. There is right. a lot of pressure and stress, you know, when you have a partnership and you, you have all these responsibilities. Right. So you you really have to make time for each other. And I even advocate, I know that this is always feels mm-hmm. controversial when I say it, that putting your marriage first. And that doesn't yeah. mean you don't take care of your kids, you don't feed your kids, your kids aren't a top priority. But if your partnership is important to you and your partnership is important to your family, you have to make sure that's nurtured. And as nurtured as your children are nurtured, right? Because you still you want to continue to love each other and not resent each other and like roll your eyes every time the person comes in the room. Right. You want to make sure that there's still this connection there. And that takes work. And it takes work because you have all these other pressures going on. So I just think that I wanted to dive into what this issue is and how to kind of head it off, like how to kind of prepare for it. And it's not always going to be perfect, right? It's just knowing what to expect makes a big difference, I think, when you're in the thick of it. I think that's such good advice. And, you know, again, on the other end, the children will go. It seems like lifetimes before they go, but they do. And then you're with your spouse or your partner. Right. You've made it through that. So you do want to have that still be your number one priority. Yeah. And if and that's you, set out early on, you kind of can work toward that 20 years yeah. later. Well, I think what people don't realize is that if you have a lot of tension and anger and resentment in you know, your relationship, your children know that and sense that, right? They, yes. are, they may be little, but you are not hiding anything from them. They're much more perceptive than I think we give them credit for, even when they're really young. Yes. So you want to model the kind of relationship you want them to have. I mean, that's also mm-hmm. really important. That doesn't mean you can't argue and disagree and have the right. occasional yelling match. We're all human, my goodness. Right. <laughs> um, but it's important that they see love and tenderness. I'm really one of those people who's not a big flower person. I kind of think, oh, it's kind of a waste of money. They're going to die. 
But my husband, every year for Mother's Day, my birthday gets me this big bouquet of flowers. Oh, and, you know, years ago, I, I had told him, I was like, why are you doing that? It's such a waste of money. You don't have to do that. Let's just go out to dinner. And blah, blah. he's like, no, I want the boys to see how you're supposed to treat the person that you love. Oh, I want them to see that you're supposed to do something special for them. So he's like, this is just as much for them as it is for yeah. you, because I want them to see how important that is. And, you know, when he said that, I was like, oh, that is important. You want the people who do things for you to feel special and appreciated. And that's what he was trying to, to show them. They're watching and your relationship is so important to your children is what you're saying as they grow to be able to see what a healthy, loving relationship could be like. Oh, that's yeah. so beautiful. Chapter eight, not every woman has the mom gene, what to really expect. Being maternal may not come as naturally as you expect. Now, we talked about this a little bit, Erica, at the mm-hmm. beginning. But because this is chapter eight, let's expand upon it. <laughs> and by the way, tell us you have two boys. Is that right? Yeah, I have two boys. I have a 13-year-old. His name is Lex. And I have a four-year-old. His name is Aiden. Adorable. <laughs> so cute. Okay. So tell us about the mom gene. One of the things I wanted to address in this chapter with this whole idea of maternal instinct. So many of us go into motherhood just expecting something to just kind of automatically pop, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to know how to breastfeed because, of course, it's the most natural thing you can do. We're going to understand the different cries. We're going to understand what our baby needs. We're going to know what cradle cap is as soon as we see it and not be completely freaked out. And that doesn't happen, right? So right. they're so, and then it leaves you feeling kind of like a bad mom or that you're bad at this, or maybe you weren't cut out for this. And all these things swirl through women's heads, whether they vocalize them or not. There's parenting comes with a lot of fears and insecurities because our main job is to do everything right for this child. And we often don't do everything right. So I wanted to kind of talk about kind of break down um, the mom gene. I talk a little bit about the science of the actual mom gene, but mostly about the social construct of maternal instinct and how that's not really fair. And we shouldn't go into motherhood expecting to kind of naturally or innately know these things. Love is innate parenthood is not. We have Mm. to learn how to be parents. That is so true. Chapter nine, the (laughs) single-minded, what you really expect. Some people will make unfair assumptions about your life. Some people are just innate assholes. You know who you are. They don't. (laughs) Tell us about that. I would spend some time with moms, single moms, moms who are in partnerships, moms who are married, And I just noticed that in my conversations with single moms, there are certain things that they worried about that moms who have partners don't worry about. And there are some things that felt like I I wanted to address, whether we acknowledge it or realize it, sometimes we treat single moms or divorced moms differently. And I wanted to kind of address how they feel and the unique struggles of being a single parent. And I remember what was really struck one morning, I was having coffee with a group of moms and one of them's husband travels all the time, like four days a week. And another of the moms said, oh, well, you're basically a single mom. And she's like, I know. And then I looked at the single mom who was in the group and I was thinking, no, it's not the thing. If you're carrying the load alone versus if your partner travels, but you still have mm-hmm. that partner to lean on. And so I wanted to kind of address some of those particular issues in the book. And then I also wanted moms who were single moms to also read it to understand that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. And that other people kind of share these fears and concerns, like, how am I going to do it all? Like, am I doing it right? Is my child going to be worse off because I don't have a partner? All of those things that go through your head. And I wanted to kind of give them a little bit of lift them up and let them know that, yes, this is hard, but your children are going to be fine. And so are you. And here are some ways to like 
help make things a little bit easier. That is great. As you said, that's really important. And it kind of goes to what you were talking about before. We're just so caught up in our own little world, particularly Mm -hmm. when we're overwhelmed having all of our children that we forget there's other people having these different experiences. And so many single moms were dating was a big issue and feeling like, well, I shouldn't date while my children are are young. And I thought, you know, so you're going to wait 12 years before you go on a date. Right. Right. (laughs) It's like uh, you, you do deserve companionship. This idea that you don't, it's not like you deserve to be alone, you know, just because your marriage didn't work out or you, or your relationship didn't work out, you know, and I wanted to talk to moms about that who have gone through it and then what they considered when they decided to date. I even have a dating material checklist. And these are what moms who were single, who dated and found really happy, wonderful, loving, supportive relationships, what they looked for and what worked out for their children and how they made the introductions to their children. And there are just things like that, just to kind of lay it out for people so that they kind of see it in black and white right. and to just have a quick reference. Like, oh, let me see. Like one of the questions, do they want to be involved with my family and plan activities together? Like that's like simple, right? So if you're dating someone and you've been dating a while and you introduce them to your child, well, then that child should become a part of your relationship for the sense, right? Like right. Do, does, does that person ever want to do activities with your children? Like that's right. important. So it's just something that I really wanted to address and I thought was important because it's another aspect of motherhood. Yeah, really. That's awesome. Chapter 10, it's mommy's turn to whine. What to really expect? Our mommy juice culture is as dangerous as it is fun. We've all seen those cute memes or those silly memes like motherhood, powered by love, fueled by coffee, sustained by wine. The most expensive part of having kids is all the wine you need to drink. Yeah. Yes. Mom status currently holding it all together with alcohol. Okay. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, but those kinds of things like, right. They're ha ha. They're funny. Mm-hmm. But I had, I talked to moms where that, you know, it's a, for some, it can be a thin line between funny and also fueling a burgeoning problem. And what happens is for some moms who they're lonely and they're despondent and they're, they're drinking to kind of quell some of the angst that they're having and it becomes a problem. And I wanted to address that. Of course, it's not every mom. It's not even most moms, but it is enough of an issue where mm-hmm. I thought it was important to address because clinicians across the country are seeing an uptick in moms seeking help for substance, alcohol and substance abuse, right? right? And there's, there's a reason for that. And so this chapter, it it addresses what to do if you think you have a problem. And then also what to do if you think you have a friend that has a problem. Now that can be a very tricky issue. Like how do you approach a friend to say that you're worried about them or that they they need help? And I wanted to address that because I feel like that is something that moms share that they worried about more than you would think. Mm -hmm. And then um, I also want to talk, I really wanted to paint a picture of what a mom with an alcohol or drinking problem looks like, because it's not always the fall down drunk, slurring the words, forgetting her kids at pickup, right? A lot of the moms I talked to totally kept it together in public, but were, you know, drinking four bottles of wine and I never kids instead. And, you know, it's, it's this idea, like we have to change this perception of what someone with a, a substance abuse problem looks like. And then how do we help that person? Mm-hmm. And then if you do have a problem and you get help and you want to live a sober life, how do you deal with being around a group of friends or a social group that still has a lot of alcohol around? You know, that's also a big issue. So those are things that I thought were really important to, to address because there are moms who are battling with this, whether we know it or not. 
Erica, I really, again, applaud you for bringing that up to the surface. Because again, it's it's a culture, it's a thing. You're in your mom group. It's what's happening. And, mm-hmm. and I think, again, we get stuck in what we're thinking, feeling or whatever, and we forget that there's other yeah. struggles that people are really having. That's a really important chapter. And I think a lot of people will find that chapter very helpful. Okay. Chapter 11, motherhood <laughs> may not be enough. What to really expect. It is possible to be both overwhelmed and underwhelmed by the motherhood experience all at the same time. I think a lot of people go into motherhood thinking it will be the ultimate fulfillment, right? It'll be the thing that completes me. It's what I've wanted my entire life. It's the most important thing I can do. It is one of the most important things you can do, but it doesn't have to be the only thing that you do. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. They don't know how to find that other thing because motherhood winds up not being what they thought it was. And so they're kind of left feeling like there's a gap, right? There's something else that they want or need. And so this chapter is is advocating about finding that, whether it is a career or changing a career or a different job or a hobby or um, another thing that gives you fulfillment and happiness. I mean, I talked to women who started charities. You know, one woman started a charity that helps homeless women in shelters. What she does is she goes into the most depressed homeless shelters in Michigan and she redecorates all the rooms so that the moms and kids can at least come to a homeless shelter that makes them feel like they have a home, has toys for the kids, has bedding for them. That gives her so much pride and so much purpose and she feels like she's making a difference. Now, other moms hadn't worked in eight years and said, you know what? My kid doesn't need me anymore. This is not how I want to spend the rest of my life. I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to restart my career. And it just talks about how you just need to sit down and find that other purpose in your life. Mm -hmm. If you're not completely fulfilled, and some women are, I talk to many women who are like, motherhood is the only thing I want to be. I am, this is good. This is, this is all I want to focus on. And that's fine too. But I talked to many more women who still had an urge for something more. And so I just kind of go through a couple of exercises about how to do that, right? Because starting is the hardest part when you're trying to figure out what to do with yourself. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to, I created a new to-do list and you sit down with a notepad and I go through about 16 questions to help Mm -hmm. you figure out what that other passion is. And I also want to give people permission. It is okay that you want to do something else besides mm-hmm. motherhood. It's absolutely okay. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. It doesn't mean you don't love your family. It doesn't mean they're not the most important thing in your life. It just mm-hmm. means you need something for yourself. Again, you're right on target. And this book is just, I guess maybe because it's hitting Doro and I at a time or me at a time when like I'm thinking of my daughters, my daughter-in-law, mm-hmm. and just thinking, yeah. To had a book, an honest book, a survival guide, as you call it, never does it does a conversation continue really on some of these serious issues that you touch on because it's the young mom's life or the life of a mom raising children. And it's just really important. I think it's so beautifully written. Um, Sounds True is incredible. So um, and just, yeah, I think it's an awesome book. You know, what I did want to ask you is, how long did it take you to write the book and the process? And I understand it was interviews and all of that, but what was your process? When I found out about the mom gene yeah. uh, research, I wrote about it for work. I was an editor at Captain Mom, but then I also, when I interviewed the scientists, I was, cause I was incredibly really curious. curious about yeah. this. I was, and then I did more research on it. And then I realized that, um, you know, all these other, I started amassing 
all of these other topics this. that we don't talk about that I needed to talk about, right? Yeah. Like I was, you know, that I, that would have really helped me even as a mom, maybe as of a seven or eight year old, I, that I still needed and wanted a resource like this. So I kind of wrote the book that I wish I had had. We so openly talk about how to raise children, how to get them to certain milestones, how to colic and tantrums. And I did read a lot about self-care and, and me time, but I just felt like that wasn't the whole conversation. Now, this book has nothing to do with your child's grades or getting into kindergarten or even getting into college or anything right, like that. Right. This, is a, this is a book about mothers and how they grow and they change and what they need as people with children. Right? Yeah. So it really does focus on, it, it touches on all the emotional hits that women can take when they're transitioning into this new phase of their life. And so sometimes I go to interviews and I didn't know what I was going to find out. Right. Mm-hmm. So really one of the first questions I, I would ask is like, do you think you have the mom gene? And that kind of started the conversation Yeah, because people would be like, huh, no, I don't have it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like almost like telling me a secret. No, right. I, I never thought I had it. And, and then the conversations would evolve and change after that. And that, so the uh, chapters actually came together quite organically. These were mm-hmm. the conversations I had with women. And so what I did was I had left, uh, I started writing the book when I was at, I started working on like the research when I was a happy mom. And then I decided I wanted to spend more time interviewing women. So I left my full-time job there and I started working part-time for mom.com, another site. So, but it gave me enough time so I could do interviews, research and meet with people. And so in all, it took about five years. I took oh. my time and I had another baby in the process. So right. that slowed me down a little bit. <laughs> right. Um, wow. So I had another baby, you know, and so it was just kind of like, I wasn't in, uh, as much as I wanted to get a book out. And I, I you know, I, I took my time and I, I feel like I amassed the right subjects and material yes, and, yeah. and sources and um, conversations with moms. And mm-hmm. I also went back to moms. There are moms that I talked to in year one. I went back to in year four to check in on. Mm-hmm. to see wow. like to hey, see did you, how did it's your going change or how was that because I really also you know I provide a lot of advice in the book and I wanted to see like it in application like these moms who did this or had this philosophy or this theory did it work what didn't work what do you right. wish you could change so it really was this process and it was the book really evolved organically it became what it became because mm. of the moms I interviewed and because yeah. of the things that they told me this has been awesome, Erica. Thank you. Oh, thank you. oh it's, thank you. it's just really so fun. fun to spend time with you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>